0: Hi, everyone. Welcome to Learn Smarter, the educational therapy podcast. If you're new here, we're so excited to welcome you. We have so many episodes that you can go and scroll back in your podcast app to listen to. Or you can listen on our website at www.learnsmarterpodcast.com. We really hope you hit subscribe on whatever app you're listening to so you can get every new episode as they come out. And Smarties, if you've been with us for a while, thank you. It truly means so much to us. Today, we welcome speech and language pathologist, extraordinaire, Rachel Madel. Smarties, you're going to love her. In this episode, she does a deep dive into what communication is, how it impacts learning, one of the greatest tricks she's taught us, and limiting beliefs. Be sure to stay tuned to the end of the episode to hear our thoughts about it. Let's dig in.
1: You
2: want to learn faster, but sometimes working harder. Is just not the answer. You have to learn smarter. The educational therapy podcast. Hi, Smarties! Welcome to episode fifty-nine of Learn Smarter, the educational therapy podcast. I'm Rachel Cap, and I'm Stephanie Pitts. Today, we're super excited to welcome our close friend and world-famous speech pathologist. Rachel Madel.
1: Ooh, what an intro. Thank you, ladies.
2: <laughs> That's true. It is true. You have a big following, Rach. But why don't we tell the people, the people, who you are?
1: Yeah. So I'm a speech-language pathologist, and I actually specialize in children with autism, and even more specifically, how can we use technology to help support children with autism? So I'm a really big believer in using technological supports, both in classrooms and at home, to really help support not only children with autism. I I do specialize in autism, but I work with all different kinds of children, age three all the way up to, I think I have an 18-year-old on my caseload right now. So I have a private practice in Los Angeles. I'm in sunny LA with you ladies. Mm
2: -hmm. You do virtual consultations.
1: Exactly. Um, So yeah, I'm really excited to be on this podcast. You guys are doing amazing, amazing work over here. I love listening. And yeah, I'm just, I'm pumped to talk with you guys today.
2: So Rach, you were super integral to the start of this podcast. Right? I think you were the one who was like, you guys should do a podcast when we were brainstorming. Yeah. So a little... You're sitting there nodding. Yeah. So a little (laughs) bit about our background. I met you first probably in 2016. And I want to say in like the summer of 2016, we got introduced by somebody who just thought we'd get along. I met you at Coffee Bean in Westwood. Yep. And the thing that I love so much about you was... That we had just met. We started talking business. We started talking systems. And you like opened your computer and started showing me stuff.
1: I know. (laughs) That's how I roll. I'm like, listen, why would I just tell you when I could literally open my laptop and start showing?
2: And then I texted Steph. I'm like, you got to meet Reach because she's one of us. Yes, that's true. And then she and I met soon after at coffee. And then we went on what we're now lovingly referring to as Boss Lady Retreat number 1, mm-hmm. which was probably a year later. We all went to Palm Springs. There was like a group of seven or eight of us, and we got a house, and by we, I mean Steph found a house. <laughs> and I had like a whole schedule of what we were going to do all weekend, but basically Steph and I were there were really to like figure out how to record. Uh-huh. That was probably I mean, at least six months before the podcast actually launched. Yes. And Rach, you were working on a program about communication, Mm -hmm. right? Yep. And I remember we were all sitting around the pool Mm -hmm. because basically at one point throughout the whole weekend, everybody got the attention of the group to kind of problem solve whatever their big project was. And we were all sitting there around the pool in awe. In
0: awe. Of what you were saying. I mean, still,
2: we still talk about it all the time. Yeah. About that pool moment. So we wanted you to come on the podcast and kind of do a recap of that pool moment, which is so funny because you don't know what you know. It's so true. Right. (laughs) Yeah.
1: I was like, wait, what did I say at the pool? (laughs) Right. (laughs) Yeah. But you guys refreshed my memory. And I was talking about communication because we think about communication as us talking to each other, right? But when we're thinking about how communication develops, we have to think about what happens before words. And there's so many things that happen before words, especially for children who are having a hard time with communication. And that's a lot of the population that I work with. I would call them emergent communicators. They're just starting to learn the power of communication. And so it's really important that we think of communication beyond just spoken words. Because a lot of the kids that I work with, they're not using spoken words. They're using gestural language. They're using eye contact or lack of eye contact. They're pushing things away when they don't want them because they don't have the language to say no or stop or I want that. And so it's really important when you're thinking about communication to think about it holistically because we use so many different ways to communicate. And, you know, when we're thinking about older children, we're thinking about social pragmatic skills and, you know, looking at somebody and you can tell a lot about what someone's thinking by the facial expressions that they're using. And so it's just communication is a lot larger than just spoken communication. And there's so many nuances to it. And so I think that's what I was referring to um, specifically with the emergent communicators.
0: You know, in terms of the kids that we're working with, right, we get a lot of questions or clients come in, and most of them are speaking, and that's not really an issue. There's a few here and there that struggle, and I've definitely worked with other speech therapists as a group working with a child. But I think the biggest thing that comes out, and I don't know if you can speak to this, but all parents seem to be really worried about. How kids can talk about certain things, but they can never write it or get out their thoughts when it's a timed situation or when there's pressure or things
1: like that. Can you speak a little bit about that at all? Well, yeah. And, you know, it's really important to think about our spoken language happens in a different part of the brain than written language. So that's the first differential is that sure, you know, sometimes that part of the brain might be stronger than another part of the brain. Um, And so I think when when you're thinking about formulating sentences, and I do a lot of work with that, with the preschoolers that I work with, and I have a few middle schoolers on my caseload right now. And so sometimes that processing is really hard. And so I think that the biggest thing is knowing that, right? Knowing that sometimes things are going to take a little bit longer. I think we're so quick as teachers and even therapists, I have to remind myself of this, to jump in, we want to jump in. We want to help. We want to, you know, give the answers because we don't like to see students struggle. I especially see this with parents because no parent wants to see their child kind of struggling through an awkward social situation where they're trying to, you know, tell a story or convey some type of information and it's just not coming out quickly. But the important thing is understanding that processing and then talking to kids about it. I'm very open with all of the kids that I work with and I'll say things like, you know, it seems like it's hard for you to think about what you want to say and then, Say it, or it feels like you can say a lot of these great stories, but you're having a hard time writing it. I think the worst thing that we can do as clinicians is to kind of have this elephant in the room. You know, like kids have awareness of what they struggle with. Absolutely. And I think that talking openly about it is the first step in remediating it. And especially when you're thinking about middle schoolers and then high schoolers, it's like they need to know exactly why they're sitting at a table with me. Yes. And so I'm really passionate about like. Here's why you're here. I don't constantly do check ins. Like, why are we here again? (laughs) You know, because it's really important that they understand it. Yeah. It's not happening in a vacuum. You need to really empower students. And the only way to do that is you need to know first things first why are you here? Right.
2: I have two thoughts while you're talking. The first is that it's not just only making them aware of why they're there but also giving them the language of how to talk about it. In my sessions, at least, I feel like a lot of the way that we do that is by me modeling that language. Mm -hmm. There have been days, it happened this past week that I was just feeling really tired. My office was a mess. There was stuff everywhere. Like my executive functioning skills that day were at like a zero. One of my clients walked in and she looked at me and she's like, where's your EF today? (laughs) That's amazing. I'm like, it's at a zero and I just need to get a really good night's sleep and I'll replenish tomorrow and I'll clean everything up tomorrow. But I think it's important to show when we have these moments of weakness as well with our students, because it makes it less scary and more okay. Right? Absolutely.
1: Yeah. There's something to be said in any capacity of just being authentic and being genuine yeah. because everybody wants to listen to somebody else and be like, oh my gosh, they have the same struggle as me. Mm -hmm. Other clinicians want to hear about other clinicians. Oh my gosh, they're going through the same thing I'm going through. Um, Other parents want to hear, oh wow, like they're going through the same thing I'm going through. And especially with our students, it's funny because we can all remember when we were going through school and we saw our teacher kind of outside of school. Oh, yeah. I'll never forget. I think I was in like third or fourth grade and I saw my kindergarten teacher and I saw her outside of school smoking a cigarette. I was like, oh my goodness. Oh my God. <laughs> 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 it's just funny because you hold your teachers on this pedestal, right? Granted, my teacher should not have been, you know, I guess, smoking with me, like watching and, and judging, judging harshly. But at the same time, it's like, it's really like trying to level that playing field. I think we do our students a disservice by, it's like, I'm the teacher and I tell you what to do. And like, you just follow, you know, Mm -hmm. what I say. Like, I don't think that that helps students. And I don't think it's relatable. And I think that at the end of the day, when we're working with anybody, you know, we want it to be relatable. Like if I'm going to the gym and I pay a personal trainer, like I want sometimes to hear that my personal trainer ate like a pint of Ben and Jerry's because like, that makes me feel like, okay, she's not some like Greek goddess all the time. Like she makes, (laughs) makes, (laughs)
2: right I had a similar experience when I was 10 we went to the set of Star Trek this is such a nerdy (laughs) thing but we were on like a Star Trek movie set and I don't know if you guys are familiar or know who this is but I saw the actor Brent Spiner who played Data who's a robot on the show or whatever and he was standing off set in full Data regalia smoking a cigarette and my brother and I were saying I will never forget that moment ever. And that's what like senior your teacher Look, like it's how many years later you were in kindergarten. I was 10. Like you just never forget those moments. I know. I, the other thing I wanted, I want you to talk about is something that I think you've really taught me and that I use in sessions quite a bit is the power of silence. Ooh,
1: yeah. I talk about that all the time because a lot, I'd say 95% of the children that I work with They have severe processing delays. Mm -hmm. And as adults, we are uncomfortable with silence. We want to fill that silence up. You know, it's like, we don't want like long pauses, but in those long pauses, something magical happens. When there's a pause, first it's kind of this uncomfortable like what's going on? Like I don't know what's happening. But it really fosters problem solving because all of a sudden a child has to either figure out what you're asking of them, figure out how to use a compensatory strategy to be like I don't know what you're trying to get out of me right now. I need help. But there's so many times where you just and and this is something that I I try to teach to the clinicians that I supervise. Um I have a, a therapist who works time for me. And I always tell her, I'm like, you need to pause more. And like, she'll be about to like prompt or give a clue or all these things. And I'm like, no, 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 wait. Uh -uh. Nine times out of 10, it's like you wait way longer than you think you have to. And waiting for 10 seconds feels like an eternity when you're in that moment. But I can't tell you how many times I've just waited and I've been Blown away with what happens because we give children the space. We need to give them the space to actually, you know, achieve something on their own. Um, And so it's just so important that we're pausing and we're giving that wait time and, you know, we're not jumping in all the time. Now, sometimes, of course, like we need to teach, right? We need to scaffold the, you know, materials that we're working on and the concepts that we're teaching. But I'm constantly always like, you know, taking a step back and being like, what can they do on their own? I'll like give a student a worksheet, and I'll be like, "Do it, yep, and I need to see like if you can't do it, you need to ask for help If you're having a hard time attending, like what can we do in the environment to change so that you maybe can be less distracted um so really teaching independence is so important, and I feel like especially with children with special needs, um I think that oftentimes we're just jumping in too early and we're not allowing them to really gain that independence.
2: I have found that it's really productive with parents too, hmm. When they are starting to complain about something, and maybe I don't necessarily think that's the top priority right now. And if I give them a second of silence on my end, or I just go, "Mm," and pause, they fill the silence because we are uncomfortable. And oftentimes they get to the conclusion anyway that I'm trying to get them to. But I've learned that in terms of like chatting with parents, but also in terms of session for students who have language processing delays to give them that time mm-hmm. and that space. I've had co-workers who needed that time to process. It would feel long. It would feel long. But when you gave them that space and you didn't try to fill the energy because you are filled the room with your energy and language because you're uncomfortable, it did transform things in session for me when you taught me, pause it. Just put a pause on it.
1: And I think it's a really good check-in. And we have to remember... Not every student performs the same every day. So it's like some days like we're well rested and, you know, I've had my coffee. And so I'm like, I'm on it. Like my processing is up. Uh But then other days it's like, it's Monday. I'm tired. I didn't sleep well last night. And so it's a really good baseline for me to kind of check in. And something you can do in the beginning of your session. And just, like, pause and just count in your head, like, how many seconds does it take for a response or for a student to initiate? Um, And I think it's really telling, too, because we can see when that's a, you know, executive functioning weakness in some kids. Like, some of the kids that I work with, they're brilliant. They're brilliant when they get started, but they can't get started. It's like that initiation piece. We talk about this all the
2: time.
0: Yeah. And you know what I was going to add? I think for those of you parents who are unfamiliar with processing speed, and we'll talk about this more in the future, but I think one of the things that I've noticed is some parents get really frustrated when kids say what all the time. Mm -hmm. And a lot of times it's not actually because they didn't hear you. It's because they needed another second to process what you have said. So... I just wanted to throw that out there and make that clear because if your child is saying what all the time and their hearing has been checked and it's fine, that might be they need those extra moments. And so if you can do exactly as Rach is saying and just take a minute and let them work it out, maybe there might be, for those of you that are having trouble and fights and whatnot with your children, that might be a really good strategy.
2: I have a client right now who says, wait, what? Mm-hmm after every interaction with her and really it's just she's processing she does not need me to jump in and clarify and then she follows it up every single time with an i'm sorry this is a point of contention like this is something that bugs her parents Mm -hmm. it is a little annoying like we get that right they're trying to fill the space we teach them that it's socially appropriate not to pause so they find a filler phrase And then it becomes this annoying thing because parents aren't hearing the words but not seeing the bigger picture of it. But one of the things that we've talked a lot in session about is that, first of all, making her aware that she does it and the reasons that she does it. But also, you do not need to apologize when you haven't made a mistake. Yeah. And she's a girl, and I feel like this is like a theme in my practice right now of – the women or the girls in my practice apologize so frequently for things that don't require an apology. So then she'll say, I'm sorry. And we go and like cover her mouth Mm. because she knows that we're working on it, but it's built this awareness for her. I don't think we've ever talked about this
1: on the podcast before. No.
2: Of these kind of filler words.
1: I have two things to say. One, when you're thinking about children who are preschoolers, Um, I see this a lot with preschoolers because, and it it actually, I have a lot of phone calls from parents and they're like, I think my three-year-old's stuttering. Mm. And it's interesting because fillers, interjections don't typically develop until after preschool, right? We use all these fillers when we're trying to figure out what we're going to say next. But if you're a three-year-old, you're just going to say the same words over and over again. So you're going to go, I went to the, I went to the, I went to the, I went to the park yesterday because you're trying to formulate as you're talking. So that's point number one that you know these fillers they come in a little bit later. The second point that I want to make clear is that it is very challenging to think about the way that you're communicating as you are communicating. And so we've all kind of, I think, probably gone on these missions where we say, oh, I'm not going to say, you know, anymore. I'm not going to say like.
0: Like. Exactly. We have all these
1: things, especially, you know, you ladies have the podcast. And so you're even more hyper aware of the way that you communicate. But it is so challenging to, in real time, formulate what you want to say and make it very profound. And also think about how you're saying it. Because communication is a very natural process. It just happens. We don't think about it. You know, we've learned language and now our brain is just pulling all these words and concepts together to form meaningful phrases and sentences. So it's just keep that in mind when you're working on these things like saying, I'm sorry, and these things that have become, you know, habitual and routine. Mm -hmm. It's really hard to break those habits.
2: It's really hard. You know,
1: it's possible, but it's just, it's challenging.
2: So one of the things we get to kind of spitball about cases and you'll ask us a question about EF or we'll ask you a question about communication or language expression or something. And one of the things that we often talk about is that when our kids are coming into our practice, they're often labeled as quote unquote, the bad kid Mm -hmm. for whatever reason, because there's behavioral stuff accompanying whatever the learning challenges. Some kids go just quiet right? And just are internalized. And then those are the kids that we see later on because it takes longer for teacher eyes to get on them and to get identified. Yep. But why don't you talk a little bit, Reach, about that aspect of what we do because it frustrates all of us.
1: It's so unfortunate because I meet these kids and I first talk with the parents. Uh, I have a phone call with parents and they're like, oh, you know, teacher said that we need to... Seek out an evaluation or they're having concerns. And it's really just lack of awareness. Teachers are not being trained in executive functioning skills the way that they need to be because these kids are, like you said, they're labeled as the bad kids. Or lazy. Yeah, or lazy. Oh, man, there's nothing I hate more. Me too. And when a child is called lazy by a parent, by a teacher. Huge trigger. Huge trigger. Ooh, I know. Uh-huh. Um, because it's just like children want to do the right thing. Mm-hmm. I believe that inherently children want to please and they want to do the right thing. Preach. (laughs) The reason they don't do it is because they don't have the skill sets. Yeah. They don't have the executive functioning skills. When we give them, you know, a two or three step direction very quickly in a noisy environment, they might follow the first step and then they don't have the compensatory strategies to say, what am I supposed to do? Or ask a peer. And so it's just, it's really hard for me because a lot of times it's processing, it's executive functioning, Functioning and sometimes it's language deficits, not understanding these more abstract linguistic concepts. I have a little girl that I just did a screening for in a preschool, and this little girl is cute as a button. She appears, you know, like she's doing great and she is kind of quiet and shy, but I sat her down and I asked her to do two and three-step unrelated directions. So I was like, I do it with body parts. So I'm like, okay, touch your nose, then your belly, then your eyes. Um, and she was not able, not only to follow three-step directions um, at three and a half, but she wasn't able to follow two-step directions. She was confused. I brought a peer in and I said, okay, let's, let's play a game. I wanna, I wanna play a game with both of you. We're gonna you know play the same game. And you know what she did is she was watching her, the peer the entire time. Yeah. Um, and so then I, of course, observed her in the classroom when the teacher gave direction. She wasn't listening to the directions, maybe because there's a processing issue, uh, maybe because there's some language deficits, but she was looking around to the the other peers and was able to follow their routine, which is a strategy that we can teach to kids. But it's like, those are the kids that really fly under the radar yeah. um, and may, might not get it referred because they're kind of doing the right thing. They're Following the routine, so it seems, but really there's some some language deficits or some processing deficits going on.
2: As you're talking, it's like bringing me back to my preschool teaching days, and I noticed. She was never paying attention during circle time. So I was teaching four and a half year olds. And the expectation is not that they sit on the floor listening to you do something or like, and it was always interactive. There were always things on the carpet with us and a story we were telling them. And she could not answer any questions about it after the fact, which is unusual. Like, usually, if even if kids don't follow the story and we did a lot of repetition, we were giving them the information in a variety of different ways. But usually, a student could at least say there was an elephant on the carpet right? They could report something back to you. But it wasn't behavioral. It wasn't disrupting. She was sitting there nice and quiet. And I pointed it out to her mom. And I said, look, this is something that has been on my radar. I've been watching. And what does she report back to you about her day? She goes, not very much, which is not unusual. Mm -hmm. The parent will say, what'd you do in school today? Which is not a specific enough question for a lot of kids. And they go, I don't know. Right. Mm -hmm. So one of the things that we would do is in every email we would send, we would say, ask your kid about fill in the blank activity or ask your kid about this song. And we'd give them the name of the song that we sang today, or ask your kid what the letter of the week is. And then we'd give them the information. So we gave them really specific questions. And I said, what happens when you ask her those questions? She's like, you know what? She doesn't really answer. And I said, let's get the support. Let's get intervention now because this will go ignored because she was so little. And they did. I've run into family since. And the mom has thanked me for noticing it because it would have gone ignored. And mm-hmm. I happened to be in my educational therapy program at the time where we were talking about this specifically. And then it kind of became obvious to me. So. And when that happens, Rach,
0: I'm just curious. Rachel Madel. What do you do to specifically not teaching us you know everything that you do, but what would you attack first if it was that kind
1: of child? I'm just interested. So the first thing I would assess is there any type of gap in comprehension? So are there just some linguistic concepts that the child is just not understanding? Um, that's a really easy one, and a lot of times, for example, spatial prepositions or time or sequential concepts. Mm -hmm. Like before you put on your shoes, put on your socks. Um, And that's not a good example because that's actually a routine. But we use language like that all the time with kids. But if they don't understand what before and after mean, they're not going to follow the direction. Mm -hmm. Not because they don't want to, and maybe not even because they don't have the executive functioning skills, but because they don't understand the concept. So the biggest thing I do is I make sure I look at all of those kind of more abstract linguistic concepts and make sure there's no gaps. And nine times out of 10, there's gaps. So then I explicitly teach before and after as an example. Yeah. So that's the biggest thing is making sure there's no comprehension deficits. And then once students get a little bit older, of course we have to check in on things like vocabulary and things that are, you know, more context specific. But the problem with that is, you know, I can't teach a child every vocabulary word that they're going to ever need to right. know. Mm-hmm. But that's when I feel like a lot of the work that you ladies do comes into play because we teach kids how to find the answer. We kids how to ask for help if they need it and all of these kind of skills that really aren't being taught. You know, executive functioning skills are not being taught by teachers. Teachers teach content. And so it's just really important to teach kids and empower kids that they can do these things independently, but just giving them the strategies to do that.
2: How does speaking a second language, or sometimes there's three languages going on simultaneously in the home, how does that impact? Because I feel like there's an understanding out in the world that it's better it's better for your brain to have multiple languages. Where do you land on that? Because I think it's
1: a disadvantage initially, right? So it depends. If there's a language deficit, there will be a language deficit in both languages. And so let's just take bilingual. Trilingual is a whole other thing. Let's take bilingual students, right? We're in Southern California. A lot of students speak Spanish and English. Mm -hmm. So If I'm doing an assessment, I need to assess the child in both languages because, say, I assess them and in Spanish they're totally, you know, age appropriate, but in English they're not. That's a language difference, right? That's not a language disability. Mm. And so, if there is a language deficit, it will be present in both languages. So, with that notion, really it's not detrimental for students to be learning multiple languages at once. With that being said, I do think, especially when we have children with you know, autism and other diagnoses, they have a hard time understanding abstract language as it is. So to understand the concept of, uh, yeah, this is water, but it's also agua that's just a whole nother layer of complexity that I don't think is necessary. Um, so I think it kind of depends. If there's a mild language delay, I don't think it's an issue. And we really want to maintain cultural integrity within families. So if a, if a student, you know, hears mostly Korean at home and is learning English at school, we really want to try to preserve that. And we can because we can teach strategies that can be used in both languages. Mm-hmm. It's kind of a, a nuanced answer, but um, I think it depends. I think if children are kind of mild language delay, it's not a big deal. And I would argue that it's important to maintain both languages, but especially for children who are just like having a really hard time learning language. Um, and that's a lot of the students that I work with. I'm just like, we need to, we need to pick one, (laughs) you know, simplify it. Exactly. Mm -hmm.
2: So one of the things that you're a big proponent of, and we are as well in our sessions is, um, oftentimes we'll get a call from a parent just speaking from our perspectives as an ed therapist and my kid won't ever do this. Like I don't and I hear that a lot. I don't ever expect my kid to fill in the blank and it's something that I address on the call because it's a limiting belief and it's something that I have multiple clients where like I'll have that parent phone call check in and they basically tell me that they don't expect me to totally turn things around. And I kind of have to push back a little bit and say I don't start from that place of it's never going to happen. That's so
0: interesting because I oftentimes get the call that's completely opposite, that you're
2: just going to fix everything. Mm. It goes both ways. It goes both ways. I get that call too. Yeah. That's why we do a really good job, I think, in both our practices, staff of prepping parents for what to expect. It's important from the whole process. And Rach, you do the same thing as well.
1: Yeah. So because I work with a lot of technology, everyone's seen this Dateline special where you put like an iPad in front of a child who's locked in, and all of a sudden they're you know writing Shakespeare prose, and I'm like. We need to manage our expectations here. Like, you know, that is that is the exception to the rule. Um, because a lot of the students that I work with, just because they can't speak verbally, they can't, you know, use words verbally, it's really limited their ability to learn language. And so they haven't been able to practice language because they're not able to speak language. And so we have to teach the language behind it. Um, so, you know, I make this differentiation a lot when we're thinking about communication, we're thinking about three things. We're thinking about receptive language, what a child understands. So when I was talking about before and after, do they understand what that concept means? Um, Do they understand how to answer a who question? When I say, who did you go with? Do they understand what who means a person? Mm -hmm. Um, So there's receptive language. There is expressive language. So this is the words that come out of my mouth to form meaningful you know thoughts and phrases so expressive language on the opposite end is being able to ask a who question, being able to answer a who question. In order to answer a question, you need to understand the language behind it, right? Mm-hmm. So there's expressive language, and that also includes being able to tell a story about what you did at school today. It's very vast as far as you know what it entails. And then the third component is speech clarity, which most people think of speech therapists, and they think, oh, like you know, I, I go to cocktail parties and I say I'm a speech therapist, and they're like, oh, I had a speech therapist, I could and say S's. Right, and I'm right. like, okay, like that's not exactly what I do, but um, it's part of what I do. And so speech clarity, the formal name for that is articulation, um, is another component. Um, and so it's like thinking about those three areas is really important when you're thinking about communication because it's not just one thing. It's sometimes all three things. Sometimes, it's, sometimes it is just speech clarity. Um, and I forget where I was going with that. What was it? Limiting b- potential, limiting beliefs. Oh, and so I, I was talking about, um, you know, a lot of times, because I'm introducing technology, you know, students, um, they just need to learn the expressive language. They haven't had a chance to practice asking a question, answering a question, using, you know, language and building sentences. Um, and so that takes time. And so I think that it's it's absolutely about managing expectations. Um, but conversely, like you said, Rachel, I have so many parents and teachers who look at a child and say, before I even do an assessment, I don't think they can do that. I don't think they can use that device. And it's just, it's so frustrating to me as a practitioner, because if that's where we start, we will be right every time. If we start in the place of they can't do it, they'll never have the opportunity to show us they can do it. And especially when it comes to technology and technology supports, we need to start with the You know, presumption that every child is capable of making amazing progress. Every single one. I always start with that because if I don't start with that, I'm limiting the potential. I'm the gatekeeper for whether or not a child is able to communicate. And, you know, especially when it comes to using devices to communicate, yeah, it seems high tech and it seems fancy and it feels like, oh, wow, you need to have all these skills before you're able to do it. Um, And I'm just, you know, a big believer in. Children learn how to use technology by getting the chance to learn technology. So if I never give them the chance, if I never put an iPad or uh, type a keyboard in front of them, they'll never be able to show me that they can do it because they've never had the chance. And so I think as practitioners, as parents, um, you know, we just need to remember that children are capable of learning. Even the most severe cases that I work with, I've never had a child not make progress. Not One. And I work with kids who have severe cognitive delay. um, And, you know, everyone on the team has been like, I don't think they can do it. And I'm like, okay, well, let's fail trying. Let's fail trying to help them communicate in any way possible. And then if we fail, we fail. I've never had a single kid fail.
2: We told you guys she was awesome. Yeah. (laughs) Just taking it all in. (laughs) So, Rach, why don't you share with our smarty audience a little bit about how they can connect with you if they want to work with you? You should shout out your YouTube stuff, which is amazing, and your podcast. The podcast, yeah. all, all the, the things. things.
1: Oh, man, all the things. Yeah, all the things that keep me super busy all the time. Um, so, you can go to my website, rachelmadel.com, um, and I have a blog with lots of relevant content. I have a YouTube channel. You can find all my YouTube videos there. I have um, specific To autism parents, I have a free video series that you can sign up for that kind of takes parents through steps of those foundational communication skills. I have a podcast called Talking with Tech, and I host it with a fantastic clinician. His name is Chris Bouguet, and it's a weekly podcast where we talk all things communication and technology. So you can definitely find us on the podcast. And I want to speak to you guys for a second because I think I did have a part in the formation of this podcast. And (laughs) It's because you guys have such amazing strategies to share. And I just love listening to all of the times that you guys explain cases and strategies and all these things are just so useful. And so it needs to be shared. And I, I think I told you that, you know, when we were, you didn't even have a podcast to begin with. Um, and so I'm just so happy that you guys did that. And um, I just love listening to you guys because it really informs my practice. We don't learn these strategies in graduate school. Like I learned a lot of theory about communication and intervention and all of these things, but what clinicians need are the tools right yeah, like we need right. the tools that we can teach these kids and then the kids need the tools that's where the ball is dropped parents aren't teaching executive functioning you know skills teachers aren't teaching it you and i like we had to learn those things on our own and we were able to kind of figure out systems that worked for us over time myself, I feel like not until I got to college, but it doesn't have to be that way. And especially if a student is struggling, like let's not let that be their trajectory. Um, you know, there's so many things that we can hop in and do. So also circling back, I just wanted to give you guys that shout out because I love what you guys are doing. We love you. We love you. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, you can also follow me on social media. My name is Rachel Madel SLP on Instagram. And I also have a Facebook group. Um, there's lots of different ways to connect with me. They can all be found through my website, There you go, people.
2: (laughs) Rach, we love you. There's been a few people that Steph and I have met in the course of doing business and being in business that have been so influential. And I would say that you are number one amongst them. Mm -hmm. You've changed so much for our lives and Caitlin as well. So... I love my boss, ladies. Mm-hmm. I
1: mean, ladies, I could sit and talk to you guys all day um, <laughs> and I feel the same exact way. It's it's such a pleasure to know you guys and to learn from you. And I feel like that's the beauty of the internet, right? And like social media and all these things is like we can learn from each other. We don't have to just like be in our our therapy room or our office just working one-on-one. We can listen to podcasts and, um, you know, we can learn from each other. And I think that's the, the greatest benefit is, you know, you guys have tricks up your Sleeve that I didn't even know about. And I'm sure you could say the same about me. So, vice oh, versa, for
0: sure. We love you. Yes, Thanks for do. coming on. Thanks for coming on.
1: Thank you guys so much for having me. It was an absolute pleasure.
0: That episode, just listening to her, I'm always mesmerized when we listen to her speak about communication.
2: I love her so much. Yeah. Yeah. And she's just amazing. So,
0: what was your big takeaway?
2: First of all, just personally, she's had a tremendous impact on us, right? Yeah. Thinking about where we were with our businesses when we met her versus now, all of us, truly, all of Mm -hmm. us have so benefited from our friendship. I'm just thrilled that we could have her on the podcast and share her with people because I just think she's an awesome human being. Yeah. Big takeaway for me, there were a couple but I feel like there's so many sound bites from this episode, right? But yeah. the big takeaway for me, I think, was when she was talking about the three components of communication. Yeah. She made it really clear and really easy, you know, because I do agree with her that there's a misconception that SLP's job is like to fix a lisp, Yeah, right? And so it's one of the three things that goes into her work. It's not the thing that goes into her work. I think breaking
0: it down and talking about each one specifically and Mm -hmm. what each thing does, how the brain is using different parts of the brain for each thing, that they're not all just one. So often we just think, oh, communication, it's just one thing, and it's not. Mm -hmm. And you can be struggling with one part, and it affects everything else. Right. I think breaking it down just makes you understand it and come at it from a different place, especially when she was talking about limiting beliefs and giving kids time and silence. I think to problem solve, I think all of those things are really important that, you know, I want to try to remember every day too. Right.
2: Rachel, thank you so much for coming on the podcast with us. We are going to link all the ways, or at least some of the ways, that you can connect with Rachel in our show notes. And then Smarties, if you have not joined the Smarties of the Learn Smarter Podcast Facebook group, hit us up. We are loving getting to interact with you there. We do once a month Facebook Lives, which have been really great to have these kind of moments of interaction with everybody. It's really casual at 11 a.m. Pacific Standard Time on the first Thursday of the month. Steph did it a couple months ago from Hawaii, which was (laughs) awesome. I did. And you know what? I may be traveling on a day. Mm. Hmm. We might have to change it for July because I literally might be on an airplane. Yeah. It's also 4th of July. We'll talk about it. We'll get there, calendaring-wise. Yeah. But anyway, Smarties, go join the Smarties of the Learn Smarter Podcast Facebook group and have a great day.
0: Have a great one, Smarties.